Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the podcast, we're going to make a little introduction. I want you to meet my new colleague, Tal Copen. She is going to be the Chronicle's new Washington, D.C. correspondent. And she comes has a lot of good uh, experience. She worked at Politico and at CNN, and she's got a good read on Washington. You'll hear about her predictions for not only the next few weeks in Washington, but next year. And she uses the term epically dysfunctional. Wait to see what she's talking about next on It's All Political. Paul Copen, welcome to It's All Political and welcome to The Chronicle. There is probably no one happier to see you here than me. <laughs> well, thank you. That's, it's really great to be here. And it, the, the whole newsroom, as well as you, has been very welcoming. Excellent. All right. So let's hear a little bit about your background, where you're, where you're from. You are, are a Midwesterner, correct? That's correct, for the most part. Uh, I did do four years of my life on the West Coast in Seattle, but mostly Midwesterner. And what, what were you doing there? Where were you in Seattle for? Oh, following my dad's job around. Oh, okay. But, I, you know, when I was a kid. But, uh, yeah. So I grew up mostly in the Midwest. I started my career in Chicago, actually. Um, Great journalism town. It is. And it, I went to school out there and did my internships there and then started actually in local, um, but in local TV, uh, doing sort of their digital type stuff at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, political journalism was sort of always my love. And in Chicago, local news is political news a lot of the time. Uh, but I, you, you know, had a little Rod Blagojevich action. <laughs> yes, right? I covered two of his trials because in a very anticlimactic fashion, uh, from a journalist perspective anyway, uh, the first jury was a hung jury. So we had to do the whole thing mm. again. Uh, but it was an interesting, it was actually an interesting learning experience um, to see prosecutors try their case twice. Uh, I was there for the first uh, Rahm Emanuel election when Mayor Daley mm. stepped down, mm-hmm. uh, the second Mayor Daley. Uh, but then I got a job out in D.C. at Politico, uh, worked at Politico doing various things, both very generalist uh, and also very specific, covering cybersecurity policy really in depth for a little while uh, before heading over to CNN, where I've been most recently for the past three years. Again, also doing starting there as a generalist, covering the campaign, uh, sort of bopping around from, you know, covering the delegate madness leading into the RNC. And then I was one of the few reporters uh, covering the Trump transition before the election. Did they kind of gave you that assignment? You thought it was like of a throwaway. Well, so did most people. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. <For laughs> Including the, all of us. <laughs> in some ways, maybe even some of the transition. And, you know, it's sort of like, oh, well, you know, that's gold. You were there on the ground floor. You were there before all the campaign reporters caught up to it, uh, which would have been true if they hadn't basically thrown out the entire transition that had been prepped very professionally, arguably, by Chris Christie right after the election and started over. Uh, But since inauguration, I've been covering immigration policy uh, full time and in depth uh, until I last month when I said goodbye and came out here. Excellent. Well, we're so glad to have you. And we had our first experience uh, together with uh, Nancy Pelosi here. She was at the Chronicle editorial board. These are always uh, very entertaining uh, visits. Uh, she can be, uh, you never know where she's coming from. I think she spent the last one uh, ripping on me, uh, <laughs> spent a good portion of that, which is always fun. Um, 
And I gotta say, I, I don't know if we talked about this yesterday, but she was in an unusually good mood. Usually, yeah. she comes in and and and, and she's this, this shameless cheerleading for, oh, we're gonna win this, we're gonna win that, and she's never gonna, they never win anything. But this time, there, it looks like the Democrats, you know, all all predictions are twenty-five to forty seats, and she was in a upbeat mood. Oh yeah, she was really, she was really energetic. Uh, she was sort of. In an amused mood, she was, you know, making jokes, and yeah. it's kind of funny, you know, being a Washington reporter. You always see lawmakers for the. I shouldn't say always because if you're a good journalist, you should be taking trips to see them out in sure. the real world, so to speak. But you most often see lawmakers in Washington in their, you know, that element of their life in the, you know, marble halls of the Capitol at their press conferences. Yeah. And so it was interesting to see her on her home turf and in that environment. And she was a little bit more sort of opened up. And, uh, and she seemed did she seem looser to you? Yeah, she than definitely her seemed looser. Thursday press conference. In yeah, DC? you know, and and just sort of at home, which mm-hmm. makes which makes perfect sense. But yes, you know, she she was not only upbeat on Democrats' chances heading into the midterms; she was upbeat on her own future. It seemed. At the yes, time. very definitive about that. Yes. She says, "I will be the speaker yes. if." if uh, Democrats take the House, which was uh, definitely more definitive than I've seen. Very definitive and very dismissive of the question as well. She very much did not want to be asked about, you know, leadership machinations and that type of thing, which, you know, you you sort of expect from her. But but in being dismissive, she was very definitive and said, you know, I fully expect to be the speaker. And as we try to do whenever we get access to Pelosi when she comes through town or when we when we interview her, we try to get her to make news because, you know, she is so, uh, you know, she is stapled to the talking points. Um, and she made some news yesterday, too. She did make some news. You know, it was interesting watching her try to balance the dual this election is not about Trump, but also this election is about Trump uh, kind of game she's playing. But, you know, we all thought the most newsy thing she said uh, was almost a throwaway that she said, oh, yeah, getting his tax returns will be the first thing we do. That's that's easy. You know, she she had she had made some really interesting comments about what she called the pound of flesh crowd. You know, this sort of notion that Democrats are really angry at what they perceived as obstructionism, um, spearheaded by Mitch McConnell under Obama, really just making sure that nothing got done. And she referred to the crowd that would like to see the Democrats give as good as they feel they got uh, as the pound of flesh crowd. And she was very dismissive of that notion and said, no, no, we're going to look for bipartisanship. And when one of the editorial board followed up and says, oh, that does, does that mean you're not going to do things like go after his tax return? She was like, oh, no, we will definitely be doing that, yeah. going after so. And now this is ground zero of the pound of flesh crowd, the Bay Area. These are the, the, the much more the, uh, the, the, the left flank of the Democratic Party. Hashtag resistance. Hashtag resistance. We are, we are in the cradle of it right here. How do you see this shaping up? In, in, um, it's very likely that uh, whoever the next speaker is will be a Californian, either Pelosi or Kevin McCarthy, although he's probably a little bit more in doubt. But we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Well, how do you how do you see the the this breaking down for Pelosi? Do you think that she's what she says she will be speaker? Do you think she will be? I think she's probably right. Uh, you know, Pelosi is a few things, and one of them is a masterful vote counter, a master legislator, as she yes, likes to say. Yes, she does like to say that she is. She, you know. W- 
there's a lot of sentiment that women should be very humble. She's she's not, you know, overly modest. She's pretty confident no. in her and, abilities. And, no, and, and, she, and, she's, and she's made a point of saying that women need to be overly confident. And, she said and she does that purposely. And I think she's not wrong. I mean, she no. has a lot to show for herself. So, you know, when she, she makes a prediction, they tend to come true. Now, you know, part of why I think that's still probably a safe bet is that even though there are plenty of detractors, there still aren't enough that there's someone else who could clearly mount a challenge to her. And many of the sort of so-called moderates on the campaign trail who are sort of, you know, threading this needle, saying they don't really back her for speaker, they always come around and say, but I'll support whoever the Democrats support because the Democrat caucus has this rule that whoever gets the most votes within the Democratic conference, when it goes to the floor, all the Democrats will vote for them. So there was a little bit of a half-hearted effort to try to change that rule right before they all left town that didn't go anywhere. So that's still the rule. So because of that, she's still the odds-on favorite, barring some sort of, I don't want to say ridiculous, but uh, far-fetched scenario. Yeah, Uh, the Tim Ryans of the world, they're not going to have No, None of them have, you know, a clear, clear pathway. It's part of why... Leadership has been so locked down for so many years for the Democrats. It's just very hard for anyone to break into that. Now, you ask how it's going to go. There are a lot of people drawing comparisons to the 2010 Tea Party wave, and they're very apt comparisons. We're seeing a lot of similarities, you know, in terms of grassroots groundswell, uh, the progressive left really pushing. You know, the Bernie Sanders wing, so to speak, has not swept by any means. No, it's a a mixed mixed bag. But you do see Democratic candidates being very aware of their left flank in a way that Republicans have had to be very aware of their right flank for some time now. So we will see Democrats tend to be a little more conciliatory as a conference than, you know, say the Freedom Caucus on the very far right Right. group has been on the Republican side. But we'll see what happens when... You know, if Democrats take the House, come January, you have this sort of cobbled together majority where you have this sort of component of the Democratic Party that came to office by pledging to be a moderate, to represent Trump counties fairly. And then this other flank that came to office promising to, you know, pull all their punches and bring hell to the Capitol. Right, you're Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's of the world. Yes, Yes. so we're going to see how presumably Pelosi is going to have to navigate the rabble rousers and uh, the the maybe some difficult votes that some of those parties are going to have to take. And how about uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, congressman congressman from Bakersfield. He is uh, currently the number two guy in the House. The number one guy, uh, Paul Ryan, is... uh, On his way out. Going going (laughs) Somewhere going yes, to take care of his family. Yeah. Um, what, is, what do you think about him? Does he have as clear cut a, you know, if the Republicans were to hold on to power, does he have a clear cut path to maintaining his uh, or, or, or gaining the speakership, I should say? I don't think anyone would call it clear cut at this point. You know, we've been through this once before. Uh, let's all remember when John Boehner very surprisingly announced he was leaving, Kevin McCarthy was then again the number two and supposedly the favorite. Uh, and I remember living basically in the Capitol for about a month as we all you know, counted the numbers and very dramatically at the last minute, it was clear he did not have the votes and he was not going to get the votes. Uh, and the conservatives were not going to come around to him. 
And that's sort of when Paul Ryan got everyone to drop to their knees and beg him to come in as the consensus candidate. So, you know, in s- some things have changed. Kevin McCarthy has, you know, very smartly, I don't want to say smartly and that it was sort of conniving, but he has forged some very strong ties with Trump himself uh, and, you know, has worked diligently to sort of try to get some of those conservatives to come around him. But they're still very deeply skeptical of him and you know, they've always been a little bit skeptical of Paul Ryan. And so being part of everything that Paul Ryan has done, because he's in leadership, sort of attaches himself uh, to any deals that Ryan has cut. And, you know, Steve Scalise, who is the uh, Louisiana congressman, who's the number three, the whip of, yes. of the man. Also some sympathy, a lot of sympathy for him. He was sympathy. the guy who I mean, was shot you know, uh, at the baseball and uh, field watching couple, his recovery has been tremendous on a mm-hmm. human level, mm-hmm. you know, but he he's not exactly staging a coup. Uh, but he's getting all his ducks in a row. He's waiting if, and, and lying in wait. If it's clear and, yeah. that McCarthy is vulnerable and isn't going to be able to close the deal, he is there and prepared. And so, you know, it's it's put McCarthy in a bit of a difficult situation because he has to navigate, one, the practicalities of trying to actually pass legislation when you have a group of Republicans who simply won't vote for certain things. Uh, but, you know, Scalise is genuinely a little bit more conservative than McCarthy and has uh, staked that position on some of the things they've dealt with this year, including during the debacle that was the ill-fated uh, immigration debate in the House. But Scalise was taking a more conservative line on what Republicans should pursue during that process than McCarthy was. And so you're seeing McCarthy have to sort of balance his natural inclinations, which coming from California may be a little bit different than the, you know, Ruby Red South, and also the realities of having to get conservatives vote in order to become the next speaker or majority leader, or excuse me, minority leader. So I don't, I don't really know yet how that's yeah. all going to shake out. And uh, California senators will also be in a, uh, in a, in a kind of divergent roles here. Yeah. We'll have one of them, uh, who we know it will be, uh, Kamala Harris is uh, likely running for president, so she'll be on a, at a different track. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, you know, if it's if the polls say right now that Dianne Feinstein should be returned to office, we never know. Uh, well, there's a Senate debate next week. Yep. But Feinstein definitely, you know, the, the definitely wounded by the uh, recent uh, Kavanaugh hearings among some folks. Uh, um, so what, do, what are you looking for from that, uh, from those two? Yeah, I mean, if Feinstein was almost in a lose-lose with the Kavanaugh hearings, I mean, Republicans made her their, you know, vociferous enemy in the whole process. Yes. But the president's name-checking her regularly right, now. You know, know she that. is the new locker-up yeah, chant yeah. at at his Who rally we saw this week. Right. But you know, she for before that she had already, you know, angered quite a significant swath of Democrats for the way she handled that letter from you know mm-hmm. Christine Blasey mm-hmm. Ford, which certainly the the Christine Blasey Ford herself asked for that letter to remain confidential. But, you know, Feinstein did not refer to the FBI until it became public what was happening with it. So she I don't know that she really found a constituency that liked her handling of that whole thing. You know, the Judiciary Committee that she is now the Democrat, you know, the top ranking Democrat. So Either Republicans maintain the Senate, which there's pretty good money on, and she sort of maintains that post. But in in the chance that it's an unbelievable wave or tsunami election and Democrats can retake the Senate, she would be poised to lead that committee. 
Feinstein still is sort of a naturally inclined moderate. I mean, she really she has been for years a very comfortable deal maker. She, you know, I remember watching her on cybersecurity legislation when she was, a, you know, the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee. I mean, she really is the type of old school find ways to pass legislation type senator much mm-hmm. like you know sort of the mccains of the world mm. she she found those bridges she does not have that natural understanding of what the progressive left is looking for in those things she's very much thinking you know what's a practical medium that we can get done yeah, and she's not a she's not a name caller she no. she perfectly she always comes out says i'm i don't i'm not comfortable calling people you know attacking people i mean she'll you know she'll scold you I mean, everybody collegial. in this town has, has been on the business end of a die-fi call right but she's like she's not publicly going to you know uh, take you out. No, she likes to get along with her with her colleagues on both sides of the aisle. You know, I wouldn't say that Harris is the opposite of that. I mean, no, you know, no. she she knows how to turn on the firebrand when she wants to rally up a yes. crowd. But it, she's not you know going around making tons of enemies in the in the halls of the Senate. Right. She's you know she's she's picking her moments. But certainly, if you're talking about instinct. You know, Harris has the instincts for the progressive left and what they are demanding right now. And she is keeping her finger on that pulse. And you talk about looking ahead to 2020, you know, on the one hand, the model for a senator very quickly turning around and becoming president has been made. Yes. Uh, And, you know, in many ways, the sort of safest thing to do is not have your name on anything because, you know, then you can't you can't really be pinned down as a, a villain of anyone. But you still have to make a name for yourself as credible. So I imagine that what we'll see from her is her trying to toe that line. She won't be quite a freshman anymore. She'll, you know, it'll be her first term, but there'll be a new crop of younger senators coming into office. She'll have had a few years to get her feet under her. So what she does in the next four years will really be whatever the foundation might become of her rise if she wants to take that next or, step. Or the next six months, really. I mean, well, yes. <laughs> yes, it, yes. That when, is. When, do you, when do you think the 2020 campaign will begin? In uh, presidential? <laughs> like six, seven minutes the after the polls close? in November, yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, you know, and, and you talk about the House flipping. That doesn't make anything in Washington what, easier. Yeah, exactly. What was what's the so let's take a look at the short term and the long term. Uh if if the house does flip, what happens in the lame duck and then what happens next year? I think in both cases it's going to be epically dysfunctional. Uh <laughs> So, Even more epically than it is. Oh, yeah. We're just, actually... we're just getting started, I think, even though it's been epically dysfunctional. I mean, look, the lame duck, on the one hand, you know, it gives Democrats a lot of leverage, but it also lights a fire under Republicans to try to get whatever they can done in the interim. And with Paul Ryan outgoing, it's a big question when he actually relinquishes power. So, you know... There's one school of thought that he might try to clear the decks with some things and leave his successors with, you know, some of the hardest fights not hanging over their heads. But Like what? What would, what would that be? Well, the biggest thing we expect in the lame duck is going to be the last little bit of government funding. And that's – it runs out December 7th. There was – there so – you know, credit where credit is due for the first time and longer than most of us can remember in recent memory, Congress actually passed real appropriations bills mm-hmm. this fall. Uh, they did about nine of them. So, you know, 
75% of the government actually has real funding. But that last package of bills, the last three, all that was was kicked down till December 7th. No one wanted that fight before the midterms. They all pushed it off. And that's the fight where Trump wants his entire wall, whatever that is, because his administration hasn't even proposed a plan uh, for a, an entire wall, which, you know, his own DHS secretaries, Homeland Security secretaries have said very clearly there is no plan yeah. to do a wall across the border. So this, But those prototypes look nice on TV. Yes, they yes, do. They they do. do. And, but those, the, this $25 billion figure, it, it, it's imaginary. I mean, there's no plan to use that money. So it's really just a showdown over giving Trump something to, to claim as a victory, which is, you know, arguably the one thing Democrats do not want to right. do. And... But they will be largely powerless to stop that. Well, or will they? the the reason that the reason that the appropriations bills have always been bipartisan is because they're just enough Republicans who won't vote for any big price tags that it forces Republicans to have to get some votes from across the aisle. And you know, the there's other stuff. So the the way that the lawmakers who sort of orchestrated this little you know, four-part appropriations process did it is they paired things that were sort of on par controversial with each other, but they did it in such a way that they married things that both sides have some skin in the game with each bill. So they paired, you know, some easy ones with a little tough one. And the first one was really easy and they get a little bit harder all the way. But there's, even though, you know, the big talker in this package is the Department of Homeland Security appropriations, there's still other stuff in there that everyone needs to see get done just enough that, you know, it can't just become a fight over the border wall. So, you know, if they don't pass something, Yes, there will be some things that don't shut down because they've already funded them, but there's still just enough that everyone has an interest in getting this done. So you don't see a shutdown happening? I don't I did I don't think okay. that's what I said. Okay. 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 <laughs> but we'll see. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, last December was also pretty crazy and you know, there was talk, oh my gosh, are we gonna be here all of Christmas week? And I'll tell you, lawmakers love to go home. For Christmas, I, they just can I just say I I got a trip going to Hawaii, so it's all on you, bud. I mean, I'm really it's, you're, it's, we all you you're, know you're, you're the newcomer, baby. It's it's <laughs> last, on you. Last December, I was definitely reporting. You know, I was like asking my sources. I'm like, is there going to be a shutdown? I'm not actually asking this to write anything about it. I just want to tell my family whether I'll be there. Um, but you know that something changes come low oh, December 23rd in Washington, where everyone just wants to get out of town yeah, and yeah. shelve whatever. But from December 7th to December 23rd. We may see, you know, everything and anything under the sun. So Pelosi, when she was was here yesterday, was talking about, you know, uh, oh, wait, there's some there's some areas where we could yeah. agree. We could agree on an infrastructure bill that's we've never really seen anything right. about it other than, you know, uh, what does he say? Six? How many? How many billion does he? I think it's, it was a trillion. A, a trillion. That's right. A trillion, a trillion, trillion dollar. Trillion dollar. But we haven't seen the specifics of that. No, there are uh, she said that there are uh, maybe on Dreamers, there could be some cooperation. Some DACA, yes. Uh, and, she said gun, gun violence prevention. Gun violence prevention. 2019, you know, as we start uh, gear up into a presidential campaign. Really? Is she, is she just yeah, that, blowing smoke up our Yeah, that's noses? nice. That's yes. nice to think about. <laughs> Look, you know, Pelosi was making the argument that a Democratic Party under her leadership 
will not be looking to throw sand in the gears. They will be looking to get things done for the American people. That's her big pitch. You know, she came in with with literature on their better deal for the oh, American people deal. stuff, uh, for the people, whatever yes. they're, you know. So that's that's the talking point, that they're, they're going to be focused on getting things done. They're not going to be focused on denying Trump any victories. Whether that's true is debatable. And, you know, Trump has not actually shown himself to be a deal maker. No. Everyone still has this notion that they had, you know, right after the 2016 election, Trump was a huge question mark, right? It was, there were enough people in America who really believed that at the end of the day, he had no deep abiding ties, which is true. He has no deep abiding t- ties to the Republican Party and the Republican orthodoxy. And you saw him uh, during the campaign trail not even knowing how to answer certain questions because it, he he almost gave answers that he thought sounded like the – you remember the punishing women who got abortions thing. You know, it was very right. much clear that he didn't know how to answer that question because he doesn't have that long history of doing that. But, but I think that, you know, that – notion should be pretty disabused by now. The last year has shown us that even when there is a bipartisan deal at hand uh, and all Trump needs to do is zig, he will zag almost every single Yeah, he's he's transactional, but transactional in like sort of a political way, not a policy yes. way. He, it's, and, it's the- and he can't... I One of the interesting things about Trump not being a politician, he doesn't understand that once you occupy an office you start having to piss people off. And some of the people that are going to be angry at you are the ones you thought were your best friends. Because if you want to get things done, you're going to have to leave your flanks behind some of the time. And so when you when you start to see the Ann Coulters and the Laura Grahams criticizing Trump, you know, Obama, everyone forgets, but Obama was called the deporter-in-chief by right. the Luis Gutierrez Right, of by, the his world. Own, by his own the, the Nancy folks, Pelosi yeah. was anathema to a lot of those pro-immigration rabble-rousers that have now been brought into the fold in the Democratic Party. But part of being a leader means you're going to turn your backs on those people sometimes. Trump doesn't have that understanding. that that So when, when the base starts to turn on him, he just comes right back no, home. No, he freaks out every time. Yeah. And, he comes, and he comes home. Okay, um, so... What are some things you're going to be that you'd like to work on and that you hope to work on in the next uh, next year? What are your what are your passions? What are your <laughs> you've mentioned that you've you know written about cybersecurity, yeah. you, immigration though is, immigration your true, is your true passion. Just just try to take that beat away from me. I've I you know I I can't remember ever another time in my career covering politics, covering something that felt so real and meaningful to people. Why why is it? Tell us why that is. Why you do you, know, why does that connect? Of, why do you connect with that? A lot of politics and policy debates are very esoteric and at the end of the day there aren't a lot of you know lives at stake i mean healthcare might be an exception right mm-hmm. that there's mm-hmm. there's a very real and that's part of why you see such tremendous response whenever anyone tries to do anything with healthcare because there's very real consequences immigration that's also true i mean there's there's very real people when you talk about 7 to 800,000 DACA recipients over the the course of its existence, every single one of those people is a real human being. When you talk about family separations this summer, you know, 2,500 kids were separated from their parents when Mm -hmm. all was said and done Mm -hmm. before, you know, the court stepped in and and, and 
Trump reversed course, which is actually the one time that he has sort of bowed to public pressure and reversed course on something and bucked his base. But, uh, you know, 2,500, a few hundred of them were under the age of five. I mean, that every single one of those children is a child. You know, so it's, it's one of the few times in my career where I felt like the political debate was almost the sideshow and the human aspects of it were more important. And keep in mind, you know, it, that goes both ways. There are, there are people in this country who fundamentally believe that their livelihoods are jeopardized by, you know, levels of immigration. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and all of that is debatable, but you can't erase the humanity from the discussion. So I found that to be, I found the summer to be very, uh, purposeful in, you know, exposing what was going on with family separations, what's yeah. going on with those children. Uh, we couldn't we couldn't stop the sunshine for one second. That's our role as journalists is mm-hmm. to, you know, expose what's happening in government, let the American people know we are their window into what happens in Washington. And 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 doing that job this summer felt very important. But I do also, you know, I have covered cybersecurity and tech and it, it actually is extremely interesting the divide between the way Silicon Valley thinks of those issues and the way that, you know, Washington startups, of which there are an incredible amount, um, you know, former military and intelligence folks starting their own competitive startups in Washington, they think about the issues so differently, uh, you know, the two coasts. And, and, you know, obviously environmental issues, water issues, Mm -hmm. uh, housing, homelessness, those are so important for the Bay Area. So all of the above... That and then, only then do you get to the fascinating delegation that comes oh, we, from this area. Oh, there's so many great uh, major yes. players here. It's some def- definitely so, some, diff- some characters, think, and it'll be it'll be fun. I think my challenge the next year will be will be biting off what I can chew, not yes, <laughs> not, uh, yes. not struggling to come <laughs> up with stories. Absolutely. Well, I, again, so pumped that you're here. Looking forward to working with you, and and you know we will be talking on the podcast in the oh, future, yeah. but via phone. It'll yes. be. It'll be a worse connection. (laughs) All right. Thanks. Thank you. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and I'd like to thank Tall for coming on. She'll be on many more times in the months and hopefully years to come. I'd like to thank Fernando Diaz, the Chronicle's managing editor for digital, for producing this podcast. And remember, whether you're in San Francisco or in Washington, D.C., it's all political. 